life where Paul encounters a culture very similar to ours. I think when we think of events in the Bible, we think, well, they don't have anything to do with today. They didn't have the internet, they don't have iPhones, they didn't have iPads. It's, it's not very modern, but the cultures that Paul dealt with had large similarities to what we encounter today. And here, as he encounters the culture of Athens, it becomes closer to America than America was 20 years ago. I was reading an article online by the Pew Research that was looking at religion before the election. And one of the main things that they found out was that for 18 to 29-year-olds, 43% now list none. For 60 and above, 6% list none. And unfortunately, they didn't list any statistics at all for 18 and below. But I have a funny feeling that as the 18 to 29-year-old number goes up, so will those that are raised in the household. God's plan for the family was for a reason. It was to bring the faith together. It wasn't for the church to raise your children. It was for the family to install that. And so that is scary. I teach world cultures. I teach ancient history, the beginning of time to 1500. And yes, in my school, we talk about creation, mandated by my school board. So anybody on the internet that wants to take me for task to that can answer to them first. But when we get to the Hebrews and we start talking about the Hebrews and the Ten Commandments, kids can't list them. Kids don't know who they are. When I talk about the Hebrews and the exodus from Egypt now, I now have to explain that story because they don't know what it is, because they are not being brought to church. Some of you were dragged to church when you were young. Your parents made you come to Sunday school, made you watch those lessons on the felt board. And you know what? You know all those lessons. When you are witness to, there is a base of knowledge there to talk about. When they talk about the things of Jesus and some of the stories, you know those stories. The younger generation that's coming up now does not, because their religion is none. So the only religion that they see is us, and that's what Paul had to see as well. So in your Bibles, Acts chapter 17, skip down to verse 16. Just a little bit of background here. Paul has been facing a time of opposition. He has been facing a time where things haven't been going exactly as planned. He went to Thessalonica, and when he was in Thessalonica, the Jews got so upset by what he was talking about that they got people and incited them to a riot, and Paul had to be gotten out of Thessalonica as quickly as possible. Then he went on to Berea, where the same thing happened. Again, he was sent to Athens by the people in Berea because they were worried that people were going to try and kill Paul. So they sent him to a large city where he wouldn't be noticed. If you know anything about Paul, there's nothing in his nature that says he would never be noticed. But he was there by himself. Silas and Timothy were left behind in Berea. He is hoping that they will come and visit him there. And now Paul is kind of waiting. And Paul does what Paul did as he traveled. There in verse 16 it says, While Paul was waiting for them in Athens... He was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? 
Others remarked he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Lord, as we look at your word today, as we look at the account of one of the men of God who did answer the call, who did use the talents that you gave him, Lord, help us to learn that, Lord, what happened here was not 1,800 years ago. But, Lord, what is happening here is how we need to look at and answer in our own lives as well. We thank you for your word, Lord, and we ask that you reveal it to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. In this setting, Paul was supposed to be relaxing, so he was walking around Athens. And if you go to Athens today, you'd probably do one of the same things that Paul did then. You would walk up the 50-foot incline to go to the Acropolis, the high part of the city. Great tourist place. Most of you have probably seen in pictures the Parthenon, which is the building with all of the pillars and everything else has fallen down. And Paul would have gone there, and as he walked around Athens, he would have seen altar after altar after altar, with idol after idol after idol. Not American Idol, which started this week, but kind of an interesting name. As he was doing that, he became distressed, which is kind of interesting because almost every place that Paul went would have been a place that was polytheistic. He was in the Roman Empire. He was traveling through Greece. He would have seen these massive temples and altars everywhere, but there was something about the spirit of Athens where that began to disturb him because he began to notice altar again and altar And so he goes to the synagogue and he begins to reason with the Jews that are there. You'll notice he lists two different types of people that he reasoned with. First of all, he reasoned with the Jews because Jesus came to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles. Paul knew his place. He had argued with Peter. Peter had originally said, Paul, you should not be speaking to the Gentiles because that is not who the gospel message is for. But we now know that it is for us as well as for them. But the second group that it lists there was the God-fearing Jews. These were the Gentiles in Greece that had come to believe in Jehovah. But according to Jewish culture, they could not become Jewish. Because to be Jewish, you have to be born Jewish. They are God's chosen people. They're the ones that can trace their lineage back to Abraham. So already in Paul's time, there was some access to God that was already being limited by the religious people of the day. And so Paul began to argue with them, to begin to talk with them, to begin to bring the good news. And it says there in verse 17, excuse me, in verse 18, that there was two groups that began to oppose him. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. These are two interesting groups that maybe we can see in America today as we begin to look at arguments about Christianity, that we are exclusive in our beliefs. I don't know if you've argued with anybody about Christianity, but their argument is, you guys are so narrow-minded, you don't let people think how they want to. Everybody should have, have the right to their own opinion, so you shouldn't have your opinion. Huh. That's kind of an interesting argument. And when you ask them about that, they say, well, we have to take that approach because you're so narrow-minded. Huh, that's kind of interesting. With these two groups, we had the Epicureans. These were some people that in Paul's time, their basic belief was that life was based 
on pleasure. The supreme goodness that could come into your life came through happiness. Of course, Epicurean is the root word for where we get for cooking, for food, something that brings me great pleasure. Aki was sent to Chambersburg by God just for me to go and to eat at. But one of their main sayings that started back in Greek times, but we have in modern day times, is eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you may die. The second group were the Stoics. Stoics were a group that Paul was very familiar with when Paul was trained at Gamaliel's feet. This group of Stoicism and this belief was very prevalent within the town in which he lived. They believed, first of all, that we should live in harmony with nature. The environmental movement in uh, the world today is very similar to what we would see here. We have to understand that the living souls of all things are just important as the living souls of humans, say the Stoics. But more than that, they believed that reason was the ultimate goal to be attained. If you couldn't prove it by logic and you couldn't prove it scientifically, then it didn't exist. Again, we see this in America quite a bit. People do not believe in God because we can't prove that he exists. I was talking with a science teacher, not from our school, but from another school, uh, over the summer, and he brought that up to me. And I said, can you prove he doesn't exist? And he said, what? And I said, all right, I can't prove empirically by your standards that he does exist. Prove to me that he doesn't exist. And that kind of ended the conversation from that particular standpoint, because it's hard to do. The Stoics became very legalistic, very prideful. They had rules for everything that had to be followed. Both of these groups pretended to be very open-minded as long as you agreed with them. In our culture today, we encounter that all the time. When it comes to Christianity, there is a broad range of beliefs. And the one that goes towards what we would say the less exclusionary beliefs, everybody likes and embraces. I am still amazed, and uh, it's not a Bible that sold anymore, but there was a Bible for a long time, which is not the Rainbow Study Bible, that was a different one, that went through, and all of these theologians came together, and they cast stones into bowls based on various Bible passages for what we were absolutely sure Jesus said, what we were kind of sure Jesus said, what was really kind of nice, but maybe he didn't say it, and what was probably added in by people. After that, they published the Bible with all, instead of the words of Christ in red, with all the different colorings. And the only thing that they agreed upon, that they were sure that Jesus Christ said, was let he who is without sin cast the first stone. Everything else, they couldn't agree that Jesus had absolutely said. We don't like to have absolutes in our society. And when we answer our society in absolutes, they get very upset with us. We are narrow-minded. We don't know what we're talking about. There in verse 21, you'll notice, it says, All the Athenians and, for, and, uh, and foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. The Internet has brought even more so the look at all everybody's opinion without anybody evaluating how good it is. I'm going to step on some toes here as well. It has magnified what talk radio 
has brought to America as well. Just because somebody can say something and proclaim it loud enough does not make it true. Just because it's posted on Facebook probably means it's not, uh, does not make it true. Excuse me, I thought I would get my, but once something is, we repeat it and we repeat it and we repeat it and as we repeat it, it becomes true because we want to be enlightened, we want to be smart. But the only true wisdom, of course, comes from the Word of God. So they took Paul before what is known as the Areopagos. It is the court in Athens that actually determines what religions can and cannot be taught. Because they are a polytheistic relig- uh, excuse me, society. They believed in many gods, yet they still had somebody that said, this god or goddess can be taught, this cannot. They determined what was good, what was bad, and to be good, you had to be open-minded. And so, at the time, the Jewish synagogues were allowed to remain there, and had grown within Greece because they had been kicked out of Rome. Because, of course, as a monotheistic religion, they would not swear allegiance to Caesar, the same problem that the Christians had come in contact with. So let's take a look, starting in verse 22. What did Paul say to this wise group of men? Paul stood up in the meeting and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with the inscription, To an unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. Excuse me, lost my place. I am going to proclaim to you, The God who made the world and everything in it, is the Lord of heaven and earth, and does not live in temple built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything, because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men, that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him, and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. And as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Sadly, and one of the things that we've been talking about this morning is that we as Americans are much like Athens. We are very religious. We have lots of religious things. We have Christian clothing. We have t-shirts. We have, I should have worn a Christian tie today just to get it in there. I have on my, uh, my athletic bracelet that has an Ephesians verse on it because I, of course, am very religious. We have leather Bibles. As a matter of fact, most people own more than one Bible. And there's a difference, as we know, between owning Bibles and reading Bibles. One of the things that used to really crack me up as a pastor is at Christmas time and at birthday times, people would give me Bibles. And I always kind of thought, Do they think I don't have one? I don't know. That was never a good thing. We have Christian books. The Christian book business is a multi-million dollar business. And a lot of the things in the Christian books are great. A lot of them are very insightful. But we have people in America that spend more time reading Christian books than reading the Bible. And quoting Christian authors rather than quoting the Bible. We have Christian television, TV shows. 
Trust me, that's a good one compared to a lot of things that you see on TV these days. We have Christian music, again, a multi-million dollar music industry that all except for one recording label are owned by secular companies. And in doing all these things, we can prove ourselves as being very religious. But as the message came again and again this morning, there's a difference between following God and seeking after Him and being religious and wearing all the right clothes or coming to church at all the right times. We have the religion thing down very well. So the question becomes, as Paul looked around at the objects of worship and idolatry, is what is a good definition of idolatry? And for that, I'd like to turn to Augustine. Can you put that one up, Ben? Idolatry is worshiping anything that ought to be used or using anything that is meant to be worshiped. So as Paul begins talking to them and talking about the idolatry, he begins to point out that they have an idol to an unknown God, which we'll talk about in a minute. But before that, we need to analyze within ourselves, what do we hold as idols? What do we have that we worship that ought to be used? Things like a television set, sports. I have to tell you, and Pastor Nate can probably back this up as well, when I was a youth minister, The biggest challenge to youth ministry and kids coming to youth ministry was sports. When it would come to things in the summer that we would have as youth events, parents would complain is about how much they cost. But when it came time to send their son or daughter to a sporting camp, they wrote the check out without a problem. Sports is something that is greatly worshipped within our culture. And no, I'm not just talking about the fact that we have a Super Bowl. It's the people that become so consumed that they can quote to you every statistic that is ever there, every player that's ever been on the field, and they can tell you all about their favorite team, but can't quote to you one verse out of the Bible. Computers, something that are meant to be used. Nothing inherently evil about a computer until you spend all your time in front of it looking at various things. My favorite ad for a long time was the guy that reached the end of the internet. I wish that were possible because then maybe more people would get off of their computers. Money is one that, again, isn't inherently bad in and of itself. Pastor Joe spent a lot of time uh, each September talking about the concept of uh, that, but there are some people that that is their idol. They need to make more. They need to make more. They need to make more. And computer games are something that sometimes we use more than we should. On the flip side, are there things that maybe we use that should be worshipped? God is something that for a lot of Americans is something that we use. We use religious terminology. I don't mean as a swear word, but we use religious terminology. We use the fact that we go to church. When we talk to people, sometimes it's brought up in conversation. Well, at church the other day, yet that going to church isn't a worship experience as much as it is a place to be attended. The Bible. Again, owning a Bible is great. And, you know, I love as well, if you have an iPad, if you have an iPhone, you have access to greater biblical resources than anybody else any time in history for free. But the question is, after you load the app on, which app on your iPhone, iPad, Android, tablet do you open the most? 
Mail, Facebook, or the Bible? Or what? Or Angry Birds. Ethan's not in here. And finally, of course, church is one that has become a religious icon. Because we think that just by coming through that door, we have accomplished something. And the only thing that we've accomplished is changing our location. It's changing our hearts, our minds. It's coming here to worship God. It's realizing that there is nothing magical about this room until we see God in this room or wherever we are. So Paul goes on to talk about the fact that he wants to introduce to them an unknown God. He's talking about our God, Jehovah. He's talking about Jesus Christ. Some of you today might fall into the category of not knowing God, our God, as a known God. An unknown God is one that is not familiar. Do you really know how Jesus would react in a certain situation? Do you really know what Jesus' goal is for your life versus your goal? Do you really know the talents that God has given you that he would love to use each and every day? As has been said in this service and in Breakthrough, if you haven't figured it out yet, you all have talents. Don't ask me what they are, ask God. There is not one person in here that does not have something that God wants to use. An unknown God is one that is not personal. Do you have that relationship where you talk with him every day? Not that at age 8 or age 9 or age 16 you pray to prayer, but that every day you have a conversation with a personal and known God. An unknown God is one that is not real. I think sometimes people get frustrated when uh, we talk about breakthrough and some of the great things that went on in breakthrough, about some of the healings that occurred, but realize that is a real God. God's power is as active and as present today as it was in the time of Paul. It's as active and as present today as it was in the time when Jesus walked this earth, because he now dwells in us and among us. One of the scriptures that Matt Clausen likes to quote very much, but I don't think we really get a hold of, is when Jesus said, you will not only do these things that you've seen me do, but you will do even greater. You will do even greater. That is hard for us to view as real. An unknown God is one that is not living. Realize every time you see God, he is alive. He is resurrected. He is in heaven at the right hand of the Father, and he is there for us. An unknown God is one that is not a friend. I think there are too many people that are afraid to approach God because they think that they've done something that God's going to give them a smackdown for. One of the things that I say many times when I preach, and I'll say it again, you've done nothing that will surprise God. There is no instance when you can come up to God and say, God, I really have to confess this to you. And God's going to be going, what? You did that? God's there. Some of you as parents know, you've known when your kids have done something wrong, and you've waited for them to come to you. You've kind of savored that moment at which they're going to come up and they're going to confess, and you're going to go, I know. But you know what? God's always in that circumstance. God is omnipresent. God is all-knowing. Natalie, we have to talk later. No, I'm just kidding. He is a friend. He is a friend that has a very high standard. He's a friend that's a holy God. But you know what? It's far better than having 
the God of the universe as an enemy. He's one that loved you so much he died on the cross for you. That he has a plan for your life. That he has great things that he wants to accomplish. Every good and perfect thing he wants for your life, he is a friend. And an unknown God is one that is not Lord. If you have not yet made him the complete Lord of your life, saying, God, it is no longer my life, but it is yours, then you don't know him as Lord. So let's let Paul introduce to us this God of the universe. Take a look there in verse 24. He is introducing and he says, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in a temple built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the times set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far off from each of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. The God of the universe is one who made everything. Pastor Joe uh, already talked about it this morning. I will just continue on a little bit. John Oops. John 1, 1 to 1, 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made, and without Him nothing was made that has been made. He does not live in a building made by human hands. God doesn't live here. God lives in you. God doesn't live in a building made by human hands. He lives in a body created by him, created to house his presence, created to be used within the world today to make an everlasting change, created to have the power of God within it to perform miracles within our community, to speak words into people's life, created to hold the love of God so that we can love the world that is around us. He points out that God doesn't need a thing. He doesn't need anything from us. Yet we are here to serve others in his name. By his plan, he has made us part of it. He could have done it all without us. Many of us think that's a better idea. But believe it or not, God knows more than we do. God desires for us to seek him. He created us needing him. Those times in which you look and you get frustrated and you don't know what it is you need, there is a simple answer. It's God. There is a simple answer. It's Jesus. And he is not far off. It's interesting, he closes this part of describing God, saying in him we live and move and have our being. He actually quotes three different Greek philosophers in making that passage together. We even have that song. That goes, in him we live. And I know this is why I don't sing in front of you. But this is actually three different Greek philosophers that he's brought together, but he's bringing a point. We live, we breathe, we exist because of God. That miracle that happens within the womb is not a scientific accident that happened because the correct molecules came together at some time within the Big Bang. It happens because God created you. God formed you. 
And God made you without mistake, even though at times we think that he made mistakes in certain parts of our lives. In him we are supposed to move. Everything we do should be done because of God. As we accept him as Lord, we say our lives no longer. We want to follow after you, God. As the church has really rallied around the concept of go local, go Christmas, all those things where we go out, we like it because we get to move in him. We get to go out and do things that don't make sense within the world's system of thinking. But as we go out and move in him, we see lives changed. All the testimonies that have been read, all the people's lives that have been changed that we know about and that we don't know about are because we're moving in him. Anything we try to do on our own is wood, hay, and stubble. But everything we try to do in him is great. And the final part, and have our being, he is everything to us. He should be everything to us. I want to just highlight one other passage, realizing and being sensitive of the fact that we have uh, a business meeting here, but it goes along very much with what we have been talking about today. Look at verse 29. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone or an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed, and he has given proof to this to all men by raising him from the dead. A theme has been that time is short. We live under a time of grace. I am thankful that I live at this point in history, in, in, in religious history, and not at a time when there was sacrifice, when there was the requirement of going to the temple. I cannot imagine what it would have been like to be a priest at that time. You were essentially a butcher more than anything else. We live in a time of grace, but Paul is pointing out here to Athens that that time of grace was for a purpose. And as we've heard today, that time is coming to an end. If we believe we live in the last days, we know that the time is coming short. And Paul is saying here, he has commanded everyone everywhere to repent. Because there is a time coming when Jesus will come back and it will be game over. And you will not have that opportunity anymore. That is hard for many to understand. And Pastor Joe addressed that very well last week when he was talking about what is fair and unfair by the world standards is very different than what it is by God's standard. But as we have heard this morning that time is short, remember that God has created a time now where everyone everywhere, Jew or Gentile, American or non-American, can come to know the Lord simply by repenting and asking for his forgiveness. We live in a time where that is there, but very soon that time will be over. When Paul finishes all this up, the council becomes very disturbed when he starts talking about the resurrection. Everything else seems okay till all of a sudden you talk about bringing the dead back to life. And at that point, they kind of dismiss him. But out of this, notice the final result. Verse 33, at that, Paul left the council. However, verse 34, a few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them were Dionysus, a member of the Areopagus also a woman named Demarius, and a number of others. 
We cannot control how people will react to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's not our job. Our job is to be the living examples of it. In Paul's examples here, it was one of arguing with words. Sometimes that's necessary. In other times, you will see throughout the Bible people doing it by action. Silver and gold have I none, but I give you healing in the name of Jesus Christ. No matter what we do within the world, no matter what, how we encounter our culture, it always comes down to that person in Jesus, not that person in us. In Paul's case, some came to believe, others didn't. doesn't list that Paul left the council saying, ha ha, those of you that didn't believe, by the way, you're the ones that won't repent, and we know where you'll end up. Believe me, Paul cared for each and every one of them. Paul dedicated his life to going out and traveling around to do that. We have the opportunity today to dedicate our lives as well. Not everybody has to go to Japan or to Africa, but everybody is called to represent Jesus Christ somewhere. People have in their heart a hole. I firmly believe this. That was meant to be filled by Jesus Christ. They have that altar somewhere to that unknown God, and that God is Jesus Christ. And we need to be the ones to show them and guide them in that direction. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. If Jane wants to come back with the worship team and close us out as well. Lord, we thank you this morning for your word. Lord, I thank you that you are a God that desires for us to be known personally, that you're a God that not only desires for that, but makes himself known to us. Lord, help us to look at our culture around us and realize that these are people that you have commanded to repent. And that, Lord, that we can bring them the love of Christ. We can bring them a known God. We can bring them a personal relationship with you. That is what they are already looking for. That is what they want and what they desire within their lives. Lord, be with us as we close out this service and go into a time of doing the business of the church. To realize that although necessary, Lord, it is not eternal, but Lord, it is something that should not be argued about, but should be something that can be accomplished with order and with your will and with your spirit within our lives. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.